You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the Chair of International and Developmental Politics and a Professor of Economics at the University of Heidelberg in Germany. Holding a PhD in Economics from the University of Mannheim, he's among the top 500 economists in the world, according to Ideas. His latest book is titled Banking on Beijing, The Aims and Impacts of China's Overseas Development Program. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Alex Schreer. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Firstly, I'd like to start off, um, as always, by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and give us a quick overview of the book. Well, I'm an economist, so I'm an economist at Heidelberg University. The book is co-authored with political scientists and another economist. And so, yeah, we worked for it, on it for about 10 years. It's a very long project where we discovered when we, when we were interested in doing research on China, that basically no data were available on that at all. And so we started with coming up with an idea on how one could go, how much money China gives to which country, to which region in the world, and started with Africa with a project-level database, then geocoded those, then extended the sample to the whole world, geocoded those, and so on. And then we looked at how much of it is proper development assistance as compared to more commercial lending. We looked at the determinants of foreign aid, this is more politically motivated than other donors say, say. And then we looked at the effectiveness, investigating does it affect growth to the political motives that accompany the uh, decision to give aid and, uh, and that to the, effect, the effectiveness of aid and so on. And how does that compare to Western donors and to the World Bank in particular? Hi, I'm Stephen and I am the host of the Simple English News Daily podcast. Every day, we tell you the most important stories from all over the world in just seven minutes. No opinion, no analysis, just seven minutes of facts to start your day with business, politics, conflict, science, tech, and everything else from everywhere in the world. Simple English News Daily has been downloaded over a million times. Join us. Search in your podcast app for Simple English News Daily. Okay, cool. So there are several interesting things that the book explores that I wanted to ask you about today, starting with China's rapid transformation on the world stage. So in the span of less than one generation, China went from being a net recipient um, of foreign aid to being the largest official creditor in the world. However, as you discuss in the book, China has pursued a diametrically opposed strategy to the West in terms of its approach to aid and lending. So in the book, you split up um, you split up the money that China sends overseas as either official development aid, ODA, or other official flows, OOF. Um, the, the United States and the West tend to send the vast majority of their money in the form of aid, um, whereas China, as time goes on, acts almost like a bank lending most of its money at or near market rates. So I wanted to ask you what you think about what you think is behind these different approaches and what differences um, and what the differences are in terms of the type and scale of projects that China primarily funds as compared to the West. Well, the main difference is that in China, many things are state-backed, while in Western market-based economies, similar things are handled in the private sector. That's the key difference. Of course, there is official 
um, artificial flows also from some Western donors that would be export uh, export funding and things like this, um, insurance money. But these are small potatoes compared to official development assistance. Well, there's a large private sector, commercial banks, um, direct investment from private companies that, that give such type of money in, in Western countries. Well, in China, the state is behind many things that, that in Western countries, governments keep out. That explains this big difference. Right? They have state banks that, that give money at commercial terms to countries all around the world. It's simply not something that happens in, in Western countries on a similar scale. That's one thing. So uh, what you frequently hear is that China is the largest donor in the world. Um, properly speaking, that, that would not be correct. It is, as you said, the largest provider um, of funds, but the bulk of it indeed is commercial. And if one would add up the, the government sector and the private sector from, from Western countries, uh, the picture would be quite, quite different again. And then in terms of projects that are funded, Western donors also did fund 10, 20, 30 years ago a lot of infrastructure projects, but largely went out of this sector. So there's kind of a gap. There's, of course, demand in particular in Africa, but also in other receiving countries to finance infrastructure. And so China jumped in the gap and is willing to provide the money for what governments ask for. And that in many cases is infrastructure projects, roads, trains, and similar things. So um, do you have any idea why we're seeing this discrepancy as in why are institutions in the West um, providing most of their money in the form of aid as opposed to China, which is providing the money um, almost like a bank? Well, Western countries also provide these other types of commercial flows. It's just that the government is not involved in it. That's the main difference. And we have a large private sector in Western countries that provides this type of funding. Uh, While well in China, the, the state simply is involved in in many, many activities uh, where the state keeps out in, in Western states. So that's kind of the, the main difference or the okay. main reason for these differences. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah that, that makes sense. Okay. Um, so next, I wanted to understand the differences between Chinese aid and loans in terms of winning foreign policy concessions or funding profitable commercial ventures. So China has gained a reputation internationally as using its funds to leverage votes in the UN General Assembly and gain support on foreign policy issues. However, China also has a vested financial interest in ensuring that the substantial amounts of money it is loaning out um, at or near market rates can be repaid. So Dr. Dreher, do, you, do your findings reflect any differences between the priorities of ODA aid and OOF debt? And do your findings support the perception of China as using its funds to win foreign policy concessions? Well, we do find these differences. We do find that China uses aid in particular to, to receive policy concessions. It's concessional type of, of lending. What is often overlooked uh, is that Western donors, of course, do the same. When we started doing this research, there was all this talk about China being the rogue donor because they would mainly give aid to countries that vote in line with them, the United Nations General Assembly. Of course, there has been research on Western donors that shows the exact same thing. Western aid also goes to temporary members of the United Nations Security Council. It also goes to countries that vote in line with them in the United Nations General Assembly. Um, what stands out for China, of course, is that countries that recognize Taiwan basically do not receive any funding. And therefore, it is often seen as, as being mainly political. But of course, if, it, if you would select a limited number of countries that for historical reasons do not receive aid from the United States, 
let's say Iran, uh, you would find very similar results. So the difference is not as stark between Western donors and, and China. So in one sentence, yes, political reasons are important for the allocation of Chinese aid in particular, less or Chinese debt, which is more commercially oriented, and then solvency is more important, and the returns are more important on the, the investment. But yes, we do find similar results for Western donors also. Okay. Um, so next, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about China's Belt and Road Initiative, also called the BRI. So your study in the book took place from 2000 to 2014. Um, towards the end of this period, in the fall of 2013, China introduced the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, which dramatically increased overseas lending and attracted a lot of speculation about debt trap diplomacy. We've all heard about instances like what happened in Sri Lanka, where the country was unable to repay its debt and was forced to give China a 99-year lease on the Ham uh, Bentota port. Uh, however, as I understand it, your findings um, discuss the BRI as addressing primarily domestic structural economic issues within China itself, such as the oversupply of foreign currency, industrial overproduction, and a lack of natural resources. Um, so, Dr. Dreher, can you please tell us a bit more about what your research found regarding causes and motivations for the BRI and what China actually hopes to achieve with this initiative? Well, it's very difficult to, uh, um, to, to talk about that, given that our sample ends in 2014. So, all the, the empirical results um, uh, are limited to the, the 2000 to 2014 period. And so we can only speculate on, on how that translates to the, the BRI, which indeed just uh, discovered in the last uh, last year of, of our sample. So it's mainly, mainly speculative. Because that domestic over, overproduction is one of the, the reasons for giving aid. Indeed, this is what we find. We make use of that to uh, to come up with an identification strategy for the causal effects of uh, of Chinese aid, but it's not the, the key reason. It's just one reason among among many others. So we have domestic overproduction in China, which means that they produce raw materials, uh, steel, uh, timber, and, and, and many other materials. And then, if you produce more of those materials than than you need for your own country, of course, you can uh, can trade them. Uh, you export them to, to other countries. And one way to do that is to give tight aid, right? which means that you do not allow the recipient countries to source their materials from wherever they uh, they, they would like to, but you, uh, you make them use your own production material. This is what China mainly does. So most of its aid is tight, meaning that the uh, materials produced in China to a large extent get used in the Chinese-funded projects around the world. And that way, they uh, they make use of their, their own input materials and produce okay. markets for, for those. So, um, why not just sell the the, the raw the, the raw materials to these countries? Why why give them aid? Um, essentially, give them money um, and then have them use the money to buy your own your own domestically produced raw materials. Why not just simplify it and have them just buy your materials straight up? Well, they do that as well. Not one one does not exclude the other, but it's a very convenient way to combine combine the two. Right? You would like to sway votes in the United Nations General Assembly. One way would be to simply buy those votes, give away the money. That doesn't help your own economy. Another is to say, you know, we give you the money, or not even the money. We give you the goods, or we give you the money, and you need to buy our goods. So it's two two goals with one one instrument. 
Yeah. Um, okay. Um, and so uh, I just want to talk to you a little bit about the other sort of two causes discussed in the book. So there are three things that um, you talk about with regards to the BRI. There's um, the industrial overproduction. Um, and then there's also some other structural issues in China that are mentioned, like, for example, the oversupply of foreign currency, um, lack of natural resources. Can you please um, address that as well? Indeed, that's the, the second variable that we then, then use to identify causal effects. So what we need to do that is shocks in the amount of money China provides from, from year to year. And uh, one of these shocks is the domestic overproduction. And they produce more in a year. There's simply more goods available that, that they can uh, uh, give around the world. And the other shock is uh, when there is um, a larger liquidity, a cur currency supply, um, then one way to uh, to make profit in that is to lend that abroad at commercial commercial rates. That's why we use that that additional variable. So the years in which the uh, uh, supply of liquidity is large in China, we would expect it to uh, give loans in particular more freely, because that is one way to earn money on these international currency reserves. Okay. Um, so next, but we lend them at an interest. Okay. Yeah. Um, so next, I wanted to talk a little bit about the efficacy versus safety trade-off found in, in the book. So the book discusses how the funding uh, developing countries gain from China helps stimulate short-term economic growth, creating jobs and providing much needed infrastructure. However, in the long term, they tend to lead to increases in corruption and civil conflict. So I wanted to get your opinion on why developing countries make this um, efficacy versus safety trade-off, like, for example, why it's politically appealing for them um, when accepting funding from China as opposed to seeking funding from the West, um, especially um, when it's for commercially viable projects. Well, these results are on an average for all countries and in all years. Of course, I don't think that the, the typical recipient government will, will say, you know, we take this money and as a consequence, we know that there will be growth. But at the same time, there will be corruption and, and conflict. And that's not what it is. Every country is different. But when we do empirical analyses, we focus on average effects as compared to case studies. So I think it's not the expectation of a government to, to start with. Then I don't see it so much as going only to China and not going to the West. It's more like you take whatever you can get. I mean, most countries have the possibility to get some funding from China for certain projects. So if you want an, an infrastructure project, that say the United States or Germany are not willing to, to fund, and then you go to China. So for every project um, or every pet project of the, the recipient government even, you go to the donor that is willing to, to fund it. And if you say it increases corruption, I have to stress that this is a result found by some, by, by other people in the literature. We don't find evidence for that in the, in the book. So it doesn't seem to be a, a robust result. Also, the conflict result is not a not a robust one. So, most of that is insignificant in, in our book. But when you speak of corruption, then it often involves the government, right? So, what we do find is, for example, that more of the money goes to the birth region of the leader of the the country at the time this leader is in power. That is not necessarily corruption, but we find that the political elite benefits from these projects. We do not find similar results for the World Bank to which we can compare it. So that might be reason alone to go to China. You would like to increase voter turnout prior to an election. And so you target additional funds to your home region as a leader of the recipient country. 
And given that Chinese aid is mostly demand driven, there are still many more checks and balances involved with Western foreign aid. You might use China for that, even independent of any negative consequences on, say, conflict or the natural environment. Okay. Um, so, in, in your book, then, are there any robust um, downsides or, or correlations that you, you you did manage to establish? Like um, any reasons why um, political leaders or the political elite in countries um, should consider turning down? Um, this aid or reasons why they, they would be better off opting out of the BRI. We did hear um, a lot of instances of sort of debt trap diplomacy where the countries are unable to repay the loan. And so they're forced to sign leases to China for things like military bases. Um, so is this something that you found was prevalent um, across countries that were receiving aid or something that, that it did make them more vulnerable? Um, or is it that um, th there are no sort of uh, robust downsides that can be established here um, that point to why countries should not accept the aid or the loan. We thought, we, we, we thought a lot about how we could, could test this indebtedness argument. So that, of course, is a potential downside that is very frequently discussed and is a valid argument. So China hardly participates in the multilateral debt restructuring, debt restructurings. And of course, the, the higher countries are indebted to China, the larger they, they are at risk of a default. And we did not come with any uh, any good idea on how we could test that. But that is certainly a, a potential downside. If China lands freely without um, sufficient checks and balances, then it might well be that uh, governments take take up too much debt yeah, and they, are, they will be in need of restructuring in the future, um, which um, endangers other, other lenders as well. We do find some negative effects on, on elements of the natural environment, but it's a mixed bag. So we use a number of, of different variables. If I've had mixed results, the same holds for governance. It's also pretty mixed. So it doesn't necessarily decrease, but it certainly also does not improve on average in a robust way. So yeah, it's a, it's a mixed, mixed bag, but on, um, in some, we are quite positive. With the results in this book. So in particular, we find that growth increases at the country level. We do find that this translates towards the, the regional level. We also look at health outcomes. So here we do find that health indicators do not improve in the areas the money is given to. So that is something to certainly uh, keep in mind. So if you would like to improve health, health outcomes in certain regions, then Chinese aid does not seem to necessarily bring those outcomes but we even uh, do find beneficial effects here at the overall country level so again that's a bit of a of a mixed result and so in summit is very similar to other donors when it comes to that as it was for the, the allocation part as well as to the the effectiveness part okay um, some things are positive and some some are not as it always is okay um and then are there um i, I also wanted to talk to you a little bit from the opposing perspective. So from the perspective of the West countries like the United States and Germany. So in your view, do they have any reason to feel threatened by China's um, sort of um, BRI and their plan to go into developing countries and fund infrastructure projects, um, especially or the way that they do it now, primarily through debt, um, as opposed to ODA aid? 
Um, do you think that Western countries have anything that to, to sort of be worried about um, with China expanding its influence in this way? And if so, do you think that is there something you can propose um, to countries in the West that they should be doing differently to sort of mitigate this effect? Well, it certainly, uh, certainly is a problem for, for Western countries. I mean, one aspect we have just talked about is the uh, the increase in debt, and it's often hidden debt, so it's very difficult to even know how high the debt of, of countries is when, when China is involved. And of course, if countries um, default, cannot repay, uh, China um, might not be the, the first not to be repaid. It might be a be Western creditors, so that is one risk. Then, of course, it's a geostrategic uh, problem here. So, uh, the the more recipient countries depend on China and benefit from China, the more they will be willing to make political concessions that might come at the uh, the expense of the United States and and other Western uh, countries. Right? When you think of using money to buy votes, the United Nations General Assembly. Of course, that might come at the expense um, of the United States. So the, uh, the dependency of many countries on China, or the increasing reliance on China makes them more friendly towards China. And to the extent um, that this is a zero-sum game, by definition, it makes them less friendly to, to Western, Western governments. So that is a risk. It's also a commercial problem, of course. If you are, if you already have established relationships with the country via aid and, and loans, it's also easier to uh, to start commercial relationships. And to the extent that countries develop larger markets, it might be China uh, that serves these countries first. Chinese goods that get exported there because they are used to these goods. Trade routes might become easier established. As a consequence. So Western, Western companies might lose out in, in that regard. So and what to do about it? Yeah, I, I was I was just going to ask uh, what to do about it. Yeah, that's of course very very difficult. I mean, some countries have started to do similar things, um, at least in principle, trying to to also increase funding. But. Um, the problem here again is uh, Western countries don't have a similar a similar volumes at their disposal because it's been mainly private companies um, who do many of the things that when it comes to China is backed by the government, right? Of course, you can give more foreign aid, proper official development assistance, but it's unlikely uh, to change much because as we said before, the bulk of what China gives there is commercial lending, and this is not what Western Western governments do. And I don't think it is something that Western governments should do, on a large extent. So why so not? Very difficult to. Yeah, why not get involved in becoming a rival for China in these regions? Then why? It's I mean, obviously, if the United States wanted to, they have a much much larger um, budget than China. They have a much bigger GDP. Mm. They have um, obviously, if if Washington wanted to, they could go into China. And they could go into developing countries, go into Africa and Asia, and rival China in terms of the amount of funding that they're able to provide as loans. Especially if they were commercially viable ventures, where they would um, the the Western countries would also eventually expect a return on their investment. So why not go in and try and rival China's influence one for one? Well, because in principle, um, that's what we have the private sector for. 
simply that's something that the Western governments do, and I don't think they should go, should do. Of course, you could provide guarantees for um, for private companies. That's what's what's done oftentimes, right? That you encourage private companies to to get involved in in these countries. That might be an alternative to to scale that up. Yeah, I don't have a have a good argument um, against what you say. Actually, it's just uh, yeah, that would. What you do in a market-based economy, right? Pro provide large lending to foreign countries as a as a government. It's typically inefficient, less efficient. Uh, you would expect as an economist, than if it would be provided by by private markets, you would then mix two two motives. One is you you would like to make profit with it, and the other is you would like to buy support. So of course, there's a trade-off between the two. If you just maximize profits you would make more money and that is then very implicit but it would be very difficult to quantify what the exact benefit is geostrategically yeah so the economist uh, in me uh, seems uh, seems opposed but it is very difficult to, to yeah. put it in words yeah um obviously from a, an economic perspective um in a market-based economy private sector lending will obviously be more efficient uh, it will be better better able <coughs> sorry um will be better able to target um sort of more commercially viable ventures um and will probably be much more um much more beneficial than public sector um lending just from a purely economic standpoint um, ignoring all other factors. But then when we introduce the fact that the primary purpose of this aid wouldn't be, sorry, of these loans wouldn't be economic, it wouldn't be to make profit, it would be to mitigate China's influence on the world stage to make sure that China um, does not exceed the United States in terms of influence, to make sure that um, China is not able to pursue its foreign policy agenda, um, especially to the extent the Western co countries oppose it um, in places like the UN General Assembly. Do you think that when we add in that factor, that um, it makes sense for because it's a it's a foreign policy um, initiative, not a an economic one um, for Western governments to get involved. Do you think that's something that um, you know we we as as a constituency or we as voters should be concerned about? Well, if you if you put it that way, it's it's hard to say no. But if you would say the the only target is to strategically uh, increase your power with respect to China. Or the, the possibility to, to sway outcomes in international organizations, then of course more money will, will give you more sway. So the answer to that is yes. But of course it comes at costs, right? It would mean higher taxes. So it's a price to be paid for. And of course, there, there are other possibilities to exert diplomatic influence, like military support, strengthen democracy. The way you give aid, of course, is a big difference. And rather than just any project, any infrastructure project to strengthen civil society, or at least try to try to strengthen democracy. And by giving that up and behaving just like China, it also has other risks. Right? We talked about um, indebtedness. If now Western governments would step up the, the money they would be willing to, to give as freely as China does, of course, the risk of a default is also high should put costs on US taxpayers. And the question is, is the average US taxpayer willing to do that? And there are many trade-offs and it's not so obvious uh, anymore.
Okay. Uh, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it was something I was trying to get at in, in terms of what would be that trade-off. So I think you answered that pretty, pretty well. Um, but a- anyway, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Dreher. Thank you. Okay. Thank you everyone for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.